Beloved congregation, by way of introduction, I want to briefly focus on question and answer 81 of our Heidelberg Catechism. So if you would please turn there with me for a moment. Question and answer 81 of the Heidelberg Catechism. The question is asked, uh, a very important question for us today, as we anticipate the Lord's Supper next week, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? And the answer is for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. As a congregation, it's not difficult to recognize in this answer the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism itself. Because we know that the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism has to do with the answer to the second question of the Catechism, namely this question, what must we know in order to enjoy this only comfort in life and death, to know that I do not belong to myself, but to my faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is very simple, very straightforward. First, I must know how great my sins and miseries are. Secondly, I must know how I may be delivered from my sins and misery. And thirdly, I must know how I must show my gratitude for such a deliverance. And so three important things we need to know. Misery, deliverance, and gratitude. And that's the structure of this answer. But that structure has not been taken out of thin air. That structure is a pattern that we find all through the Word of God. And that structure is so very essential because that structure is the paradigm of all true Christian experience. And so whether I am David or whether I am Manasseh, whether I am Timothy or whether I am Saul of Tarsus, whether I am someone like Brockle who could, who, who could not remember a time in his life that he did not love the Lord Jesus Christ, who feared God from his youth, or whether I am a John Newton who lived in open, brazen sin and yet came to such a remarkable conversion, whether I'm a Lydia or whether I'm a jailer. All of these have this in common, that they know in some measure how great their sins and miseries are, how they have been delivered from that in Christ, and who have demonstrated by their lives a desire to live in the fear of God as an expression of gratitude for such deliverance. And this remarkable pattern 
is clearly found in the psalm which we read to you, Psalm 130. And with God's help, we will focus this morning on verses 3 and 4 as our text for this hour of preparation. And so there we read God's word in our text. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. And so in this passage, we have the gospel, the good news of divine forgiveness. And again, boys and girls, if you have your Bible open, let's see where the points come from. First of all, there is the need for forgiveness. Look at verse 3, where the psalmist says, Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, Lord, who shall then stand? Who can then stand before thee? In other words, the psalmist, as we will see, realized that before God he was utterly undone. The need for this forgiveness. Secondly, the wonder of this forgiveness. And that is highlighted also by that very simple little word, but. In light of that, in spite of all of that, but there is forgiveness with thee. The wonder of this forgiveness. And thirdly, the purpose of this forgiveness. And so the second line in verse 4 begins with the word that, right? And the word that here introduces what we call a, a purpose clause. So for what purpose? For what purpose does God pardon sin in order that we would fear him? That's the purpose of divine forgiveness. So the need for this forgiveness, the wonder of this forgiveness, and the purpose of this forgiveness. Congregation, Psalm 130 has rightly been called a miniature gospel. And the great Puritan John Owen so much loved this gospel that he devoted an entire work to the exposition of Psalm 130. And I could highly recommend that book for your own reading and for your own instruction. And there's a reason why it's called a miniature gospel. Because this psalm contains every foundational aspect of the gospel. And remarkably, it begins, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O God. And so we don't have to guess what those depths were for the psalmist. We realize that because of sin, that human beings often find themselves in the depths, or as we call it, in the depths of despair. And we live in a broken, fallen world, a world filled with sorrow, a, a world filled with grief, a world in which so many have to deal with great trials and great afflictions and find themselves in the depths. But the focus of this psalm is very specific. What was it that made the psalmist feel that he was in the depths? What was it that made him sense this very great need that caused him to lift up his voice to God, to cry out unto 
the Lord. Boys and girls, I hope you've noticed as you read this psalm that again we, all through that psalm, we see that beautiful name of God in capital letters, L-O-R-D. And I will emphasize that over and over again because it is so helpful when you read the Old Testament. Whenever you see that name, that most prominent name of God, we must stop and consider what is its significance also in this psalm. And so again, I want to emphasize that that name, that name opens for us the very heart of God. That name unveils to us the character of God. That name is the name that is intimately connected with the gospel itself. That name is God's gospel name. That is the name that testifies of His grace and of His mercy. That is the name that expresses that that profound truth revealed for the first time to Moses in Exodus 3 when God said to Moses, I am that I am. A congregation, as we will see in this psalm, the beauty of this psalm is that the psalmist, as he cries out of the depths, he finds his encouragement, he finds his hope in that precious name. Because our text makes it crystal clear what it was that so troubled this man, what it was that weighed him down, what it was that caused him to cry out of the depths. His great burden was his sinnership. Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquities... And it's very clear from this passage that this man was not merely concerned with the consequences of his sin. Often people will cry to the Lord out of their depths, out of their difficult circumstances, and all they really desire is to be delivered from the consequences of sin. The congregation, this psalmist here, and possibly David, this psalmist, he is concerned with sin itself, sin in its very nature. And what makes him so painfully aware of who he is? Because congregation, God has become so very real to him. That always happens in the saving work of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God works savingly, when he makes us spiritually alive, then God becomes real. The God of Scripture, the God who has revealed himself. And the psalmist is very aware of who God is. And in light of that reality, he sees himself. And he's profoundly troubled by his sinnership. And that is a remarkable evidence of grace. I'm not suggesting that the knowledge of your misery all by itself is evidence of grace. Because if the knowledge of our misery does not bring us to the solution for that misery to be found in Christ, then that knowledge is not the saving work of the Holy Spirit. But we will see clearly in our text, clearly in that psalm, that the awareness of his sinnership 
was wrought upon him by the Holy Spirit to bring him to the wonder of God's remedy, namely the wonder of divine forgiveness in Christ. O Lord, he says, if thou shouldst mark iniquities, in the, Dutch, in the Dutch Bible it says, Lord, if thou shouldst mark my unrighteousnesses. And the word iniquity, even in English, the word iniquity means unequal to. That means that we do not measure up to what God requires in his word. It's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 3 verse 23 when he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. O Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquities. And see, congregation, here we see, and you will hear me often say this, but here we see a clear illustration. Here is someone who sees himself the way God sees him. And that's all the difference. When we grow up under the preaching of God's Word and when we are instructed by our parents and our teachers, we all understand that we are sinners. But I ask you this morning, have you ever seen yourself the way God sees you? That's the, see, that's what's going on here. That's what we find in Psalm 51 verse 3. When Nathan comes and says to David, thou art the man. And David then confesses his sin, beautifully expressed in Psalm 51. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in my sight. But there's more to it here. The language is remarkable. Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquities... Literally, that means, Lord, if thou wouldst hold me accountable for my covenant obligations. Now, that's a mouthful. I realize that. So let me try to unpack that. Because what that focuses on, congregation, is that as sinners, we are covenant breakers. That's what Adam and Eve did. They broke their covenant with God. God who had created them and brought them into this wonderful love relationship with himself. They violated that relationship. They divorced themselves from God. And ever since that day, we live and die as covenant breakers unless God redeems us. And the psalmist says here, David says here, if God would hold me accountable for my covenant obligations. In other words, he realized who he was in the sight of God. So boys and girls, the best way I can explain this to you is this way. It is as if the psalmist says, if God would give me a report card, I would have nothing but F's on my report card. I would have an F for every aspect of my life. That's what he realized. And that becomes 
an experiential reality in the lives of God's children. And we're not talking about degree. We're not talking about length. We're not talking about measure. But when the Spirit of God works savingly in our, in our lives, this will become experientially real to us. And that's necessary, congregation. Because without that awareness, without that recognition, we will never value the good news of the gospel. We will never value the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, there are many who claim to love Jesus today, but who are clueless when it comes to this, who claim to be believers in Christ. Yet if you ask them, but tell me, what is it about Christ that attracts you? What is it about Christ that is precious to you? Why, why are you a believer in Christ? A very, a very simple question. A question for which I do not require a very complicated answer. Far too often I have received answers that are profoundly disappointing. I've had people say to me, well, uh, he's, he's just there for me, he's my friend, and when I'm in trouble I can turn to him, and all kinds of stories. But the one thing that was missing, what's in our text. All I'm, all I'm looking for is not, a, like I said, I'm not looking for a complicated, long story. But all I'm looking for is that I need such a Savior. I need that Savior because I realize what a wretched sinner I am. I realize how undone I am. I realize who I am in the sight of God. And my only hope is in this Christ whom God has provided. I need such a Savior to save me from my sins. Christ did not come to deliver us from our troubles. He did not come to be a problem solver. He came to save us from our sins. But not only does the psalmist realize that there are nothing but F's on his report card, but he realizes that because of his sin, he also is guilty before God. Not only is he aware of his failure, that he comes short of God's glory, but he says, who, Lord, who shall stand? That's a legal term that reminds us of the courtroom. Oh, the psalmist realized that before the bar of God's justice, he did not have any standing. He knew that the nature of his sin was such that he stood before God as a guilty sinner, not only as a failed sinner, but as a guilty sinner. And boys and girls, do you remember what the, what the word guilty means again? What does it mean to be guilty? So at home, if you have misbehaved yourself and your mom and dad says you are guilty, what does that mean when you're guilty? To be guilty means you deserve punishment. That's what the psalmist realized. He realized that he had no standing before God. He realized that in the bar of God's justice, 
He stood there as a condemned man. And again, congregation, that awareness is so essential in true experience. Because without that awareness, why, why would we ever desire a, a crucified Savior? Because that's what the Lord's table is all about. The Lord's table sets before us the visible reminder of the cross of Calvary. And why do we need a crucified Savior? I hope to unpack that in much more detail tonight, but let me be very, very brief here. We need a crucified Savior because as sinners, we are subject to the curse of God. And when that curse rests upon us, congregation, God's judgment upon us is inescapable. And the psalmist realized this. He realized there was no place for him to flee. The realization that he was a sinner, that he had utterly failed to live up to what God requires of him, the realization that he was guilty was so profoundly painful to him he said, I, I have no standing before that God. That's the meekness that Jesus talks about. Blessed are the meek. Not only they who realize their spiritual poverty, who mourn over that poverty, but who, who take their proper place before God, who recognize who they are before God. And yet, congregation, that's not where it ends. There's not a period here. If there were a period here, it would be hopeless for us and for our children. And suddenly there comes this dramatic change. And with unspeakable joy, suddenly the psalmist cries out, but in spite of that reality, in spite of who I am, but there is forgiveness with thee. Oh, that precious word, but. The word nevertheless. This has rightly been called. This little word, but, is the hinge on which the entire gospel turns. That word, but, expresses the wonder of God's good pleasure. The wonder that the God before whom we cannot stand, that that God is a God who delights in mercy, that that God is a very gracious God. That's why we find that word so often in the Word of God. And I may have told you this before, but the late Dr. R.C. Sproul was so impressed by that little word, but, that he had a lady friend in his congregation embroidered that word but for him. And he had it in a very prominent place in his office. Always to remember, to remind him that that word but is the hinge on which the entire gospel turns. Psalm 78 verse 38, that's that psalm in which the psalmist describes Israel's failures over and over again. And then it says in verse 38, but he being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. In Ephesians 2, 
verse 3 and 4. Paul writing to the Ephesians, reminding them who they were. He says, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, for this great love wherewith he loved us. And you see, you can hear in this confession, you can hear the wonder of this psalmist, the wonder when by renewal light is shed upon the wonder of God's grace in Christ. Oh, in holy adoration, he cries out, but in spite of who I am, in spite of the fact that I have offended this God, yet with him, with the God before whom I cannot stand, with that God, there is forgiveness. You see, that's what, not, that's what John Newton meant when he wrote his famous song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There you have it. That's why God's grace was so amazing to John Newton, because he knew that he was a wretch in himself, and the psalmist recognizes that as well. And you see, we will never be amazed at God's grace unless the Spirit of God has instructed us in such a way that God's grace becomes so amazing to us that with Him there is forgiveness. And my friend, if you have never been amazed, absolutely amazed at the wonder of the gospel, then you probably are not familiar with the amazing grace of God, experientially, that is. But how can this be? How can this be? That there is forgiveness with this God, who is infinitely holy, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil. How can this be? In the original text, it actually says this. But there is the forgiveness with thee, really emphasizing the very unique nature of that forgiveness. And when we look at this passage now in light of the New Testament, then it's obvious that what is expressed here is the wonder of the gift of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then this points us, this points us that God has appointed an acceptable sacrifice for covenant breakers. This is the wonder that was expressed even by Abraham in Genesis 22 when Isaac asked the question, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And that's the wonder of our text. It's because of that Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of His sacrifice that the God against whom we have sinned, the God before whom we cannot stand, that with that God there is forgiveness, and that with Him there is abundant forgiveness. That in Christ, God can freely pardon our sins. That in Christ, God can demonstrate that He is a God of plenteous mercy, an overflowing fountain of mercy in Christ. 
And that's because congregation. And so, boys and girls, to go back to that report card, it's because on the cross of Calvary, the father said to his son, you are responsible for all the report cards of your children. You are responsible for all of their covenant obligations. And so God dealt with him, his only begotten son. He dealt with him as if he had an, nothing but F's on his report cards. Because on the cross of Calvary, God held him accountable for our covenant obligations. We read it together from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. That God made him, his only begotten son, his beloved son, God made him who knew no sin. He made him to be sin in order that we who cannot stand before God, we who are void of all righteousness so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. And that's why, that's why God can so freely pardon the sinner that takes refuge to his only begotten son. Oh, that sacrifice is so pleasing in his sight. That sacrifice is so complete. And because of that sacrifice, God can freely allow the love of his heart to flow towards guilty sinners like us. And you can see, congregation, that if your sinnership has not become real to you, how will this ever be real to you? How will you ever be amazed at this gospel? How will you ever be amazed that there is forgiveness? Forgiveness that God is willing and ready and delights in pardoning the sinner that takes their refuge to Christ. And that in his word, he offers a complete pardon, a pardon that covers all of our transgressions. Ah, you see, in the gospel, God offers complete forgiveness, not by compromising himself, not by looking the other way, but there is complete forgiveness on the basis of complete satisfaction. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Oh, what a beautiful, what a beautiful demonstration this is of the character of God. Here we have an illustration of what I've said earlier, that God gave his son to be a sacrifice for sin. And in his son, God gave himself. God gave himself so that he can be himself. God gave himself in his son so that in him he can allow his love to flow freely to sinners who cannot stand before him. Kelvin has a beautiful statement here as he comments on this psalm. He says this, I have no doubt thou wilt be merciful to me 
it being impossible to divest thyself of thine own nature. The very fact that thou art God is to me a sure guarantee that thou wilt be merciful. Let me repeat that. The very fact that thou art God is to me a sure guarantee that thou wilt be merciful. And that's the mystery of, of God's revelation to Moses in Exodus, where God reveals himself and he says, I am merciful and gracious, forgiving sin, iniquity, and transgression, and who can by no means clear the guilty. So on the one hand, God declares that he is a forgiving God, and then he says, I can by no means clear the guilty. And the only way that you can solve that apparent contradiction is by putting the cross between those two statements. Because on the cross, represented in the Lord's Supper, God declares, the reason my son had to die the reason, dear believer, he was wounded for your transgressions and the reason he was bruised for your iniquities is because I cannot clear the guilty. I cannot compromise myself. But the wonder of the cross is that because of that perfect finished work of the Savior, because of his precious blood, the God who can by no means clear the guilty can now clear the guilty, can now freely pardon sin. And he is a God who delights to pardon sin. The congregation, again I want to emphasize that this is the heart of the gospel. This is the portion of all who by grace have taken refuge to this Christ. That simple faith, that simple faith that touches the hem of his garment, that simple faith that looks to him, that simple faith secures to you, dear child of God, the full and free pardon of all of your sins. And the Lord is pleased to use the Lord's Supper to reaffirm that blessed reality. Because congregation, this is something that we can never hear enough. For God's children struggle with sin until their last breath. And time and again we need to be reminded of this wonderful truth of the gospel. Time and again we need to be encouraged to come again and again to this God in Christ. Who is ever ready, 70 times, 7 times to forgive us our sins. Because we need to realize that what we find in our text, verses 3 and 4, that this is the lifetime experience of God's children. Time and again, every exercise of faith, every new exercise of faith, functions in the context of this text. When... when even as a believer, in my dismal failure, when I again bow before God, when I again have to say, Lord, if thou shouldst mark my iniquity, if thou shouldst mark my failure, I cannot stand. So that again and again we lift our eyes towards this crucified Christ and to discover time and again that with Him, 
there is forgiveness. Oh, this is the heartbeat of the gospel. That's why in the book of Leviticus, you will find this phrase ten times. It shall be forgiven him. Over and over again, you read that phrase. That was the message that the priests had to proclaim to any Israelite who would come because they had sinned and who would bring the appropriate sacrifice. In God's name, they had to say to that Israelite, because you have come in God's ordained way, because you have come here trusting in God's provision in that sacrifice, we declare to you that your sin is forgiven. A congregation, God wants His children to know this. He does not want His children to live in doubt about the forgiveness of their sins. He wants you to be assured of that pardon. That's the purpose of the Lord's Supper, is to reassure you again. That's why we are commanded to come to this table to do this in remembrance of Him, to focus on Him, on His glorious person, to focus on what He has accomplished by the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood, to reassure God's children. As surely as you see those visible tokens of the suffering and dying of my son, so sure it is that I declare to you that because of that sacrifice, I have fully blotted out all of your transgressions. I have fully pardoned all of your sins. But there's a purpose for it. I have to be brief here. Hopefully I can address that next week in the reflection sermon. But it says, that thou mayest be feared. So why is it that God wants to assure His people that they are forgiven? So that they will fear Him. Because that's the purpose of your salvation. The purpose of redemption is not merely to deliver you from sin and all of its consequences. But the purpose of redemption is so that you become a new creature in Christ. So that you begin to live a God-glorifying life. But to be able to do that, you need to be free of all fear. And so only when through the gospel of divine forgiveness we are delivered from that fear can we fear God without fear. That's the whole point. So let me say this again. God wants His children to be assured of their forgiveness so that we can fear Him without fear. Without the fear of losing His favor again. Without the fear that my very, very inadequate sanctification will somehow again disconnect me from God. What a comfort that is. Because the sanctification of God's children is so imperfect. It is the desire of every true believer to fear God. A God-fearing person is a person who takes God seriously, who takes His Word seriously. And the fruit, you see, the fruit of experiencing that wonder of forgiveness is that we desire to devote our life to that God who has pardoned me. 
And so what this text clearly says, that forgiven sinners will always be God-fearing sinners. Those two are inseparable. Or to use theological terms, justification always produces sanctification. Justification is the restoration of our relationship with God. Sanctification is the functioning of that relationship. We just had two weddings in this community. So on the wedding day, the relationship between husband and wife is established. But that's when it starts. Then the rest of life, married life, is the outworking of that relationship that was established. The functioning of that relationship. And so it is in grace. So it is in the life of the believer. And so forgiven sinners will always be God-fearing sinners. And Calvin therefore says that the forgiveness of sins is the foundation and fountain of true piety. Let me repeat that. For the forgiveness of sins is the foundation and the fountain of true piety. When we realize that God has pardoned my sin. I am then free to fear him without fear because we fail so often. We stumble so often. But what a comfort it is to know that at the end of the day, even though I may have failed as a believer, that I can come back to this God who is always ready to grant me a pardon again, to reassure me of that pardon. To know that my failings and my stumblings and the imperfection of my sanctification will not undo my justification, will not cancel this divine pardon. And so again, God wants His children to be assured of that, assured of that full and free pardon so that they have the freedom to serve Him. Again, let me quote Calvin. Listen carefully to what he says. Men never serve God aright unless they know that he is a gracious and merciful being. Let me repeat this. Men never serve God aright unless they know that he is a gracious and merciful being. And that's what the psalmist recognized. That's what encouraged him to lift up his voice to God. That's what encouraged him to come to him and to seek the pardon of his sins. Because he knew that God was a gracious God. It's very well possible that as the Israelites sang this psalm, this is one of the songs of the Greece, the songs of ascent. Psalm 120 through 134, 15 psalms that the, the Israelites would sing when they would ascend Mount Zion during the great feasts of the year. And perhaps there were Israelites who were troubled about their sin, but as they ascended Mount Zion, there they saw the temple. They saw the symbol of God's grace. And with joy they would sing, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. So here we have a congregation. Here we have the paradigm 
of spiritual life. This is it. This is the essence of it. I once said to a child who asked me, how do I know whether I am a child of God? And I gave this simple answer. I said, when you're a child of God, sin becomes real, experientially real. Christ becomes real, and a desire to fear God becomes real. All these things become real, experientially real in your life. And so for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For all those who recognize themselves in this passage. Who recognize in this passage what you have experienced and continue to experience in your own soul. For those, there is a table, a table that reminds us of the essential truths of the gospel. A table that directs us to look outside of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. A table instituted by God to work that assurance in our hearts. Oh, the Lord Jesus knows. He knew when he instituted the Lord's Supper how weak our faith can be. How feeble our spiritual life can be. How we can struggle at times. And what a mercy it is that time and again he comes so very near to us. And he gives us this visible affirmation of who he is and what he has accomplished. And so, my dear congregation, do you recognize yourself in this passage? How will you stand before God without without having found salvation in Christ, without having trusted in Him, you will not be able to stand before Him. And He will damn you. He will condemn you. And so if you're not prepared for the Lord's table, you're ultimately not prepared to meet the judge of all the earth. So let us take this with us and examine ourselves and I pray that by God's grace, we understand experientially what the psalmist has expressed, that we can truly say, Lord, if thou shouldst mark my iniquities, I cannot stand before thee. But my hope is in thy Son, knowing that in him and through him there is forgiveness, even for me, in order that I might fear thee. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, wilt thou bless the word that has been spoken this morning. That we would examine our own hearts and lives in light of this passage. And that next week, all those who recognize themselves in this passage, for whom Christ has become their only hope, that they would come forward to show forth his death in the midst of the congregation. Go with us now as we depart from here. Bless the instructional period for our children and young people and gather with us again in this evening hour.
We ask it only in Christ's name. Amen.